Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard a brand new track from Year of the Knife. The track is called Dust to Dust. Yesterday, the surprise release of a new three-song EP of the same name, Dust to Dust, dropped on the social medias, the Spotify's, etc., etc. This is the first new music completely featuring Maddie Watkins, formerly of bass now on the vocals. And they're going to have a busy year coming up for them. Lately, they got some shows with Gates to Hell and Sanguisugabog and Eternal Bleeding, which ties into their other band name, um, Domation, Domain, Domation, some death metal shit that these kids do. But Year of the Knife is back with new material. Maddie's on vocals. Um, they were just announced as part of the Black and Blue 2023 lineup. And I'm sure we're going to see more of Year of the Knife in the coming months, especially with new music and a new focus. I don't know if you can hear the metal in it, but it's definitely a turn. Not completely 90, not 45, but a little turn in a more metallic direction from um, Internal Incarceration, the LP that came out on Pure Noise. So check them out. Delaware's Metallic Hardcore Queen. Maddie Watkins also does Candidate Corpse, and she has also been a guest on the podcast. I think she was episode four. This has been a wild week, wild week indeed. I think sometimes the personal side of life, I cover up pretty well. I don't really get too deep into it, but um, at home, not like in my own home, but like in my home family, things are not, you know, they're not, oh my God, what are you going to do? But a little chaos. Um, today marks seven days that my mother will be in Temple University Hospital for a hip replacement surgery. Um, she had a hip that was broken and a tumor in it. Um, my mother survived a double mastectomy and beat breast cancer and then found out earlier or late last year that she had mastecized cancer and had to go back in for cancer treatments. And then she's going to be moving to Moss Rehab. So she's going to be in hospital for quite a bit. But um, for those of you that want to reach out to her, I'm going to have her stuff on the Instagram. I know there are quite a few people who hit my mom up because she's at every This Is Hardcore and has been a part of the larger community just by allowing so many chaotic moments to happen in our house when we were growing up. And I I refuse to just openly say this, but I could see, depending on the length of her hospital stay, us needing some help just to keep her bills and things going while she is in the hospital. But this is also about a month shy of her 60th birthday, which in itself is bizarre. But I don't really talk about personal stuff too much, but it hasn't been a giant dark cloud, but it's definitely something ominous and worrisome and she had made a post today and I figured bring it up instead of people being hey yo what's up with your mom my mom is a hard motherfucker she's bitten people's fingers off stabbed people with swords shot shotguns through walls fucking maniac and yet we watch as cancer just pulls her apart and hopefully she can beat it 
Man, that's a fucking weird way to go from you're the knife and the that, huh? My bad. Sorry, fellas and ladies and everyone else in between. This has been a wild year. And um, in the not completely um, brighter side, Saturday, February 4, will be a benefit show to help Philadelphia's own Matt Summers. Matt Summers, effectively called the Matt Summers Bold. Uh, Cold World, Floor Punch Restraining Order, Shark Attack, Chemical Fix, Raw Brigade, Violent Minds, Sunstroke. And this is at the Union Transfer. $30 at the door. This is a benefit. Um, Matt Summers himself happened to be in a bicycle accident late last year. And despite the um, amount of money coming into GoFundMe and nearly 2,000 donors, he is constantly having surgery. And um, in fact, he will not even be at the show February 4th because today, Friday, February 3rd, he will be getting his craniotomy which is basically when they take a, I don't know, 3D printed piece of skull and put it back on his head. But this is the part of hardcore that we need to understand is, you know, always going to be with us is that people within the community, people who have spent a lot of time in the community, get hurt and don't have the funds and we've been able to come together. So if you're able to make it out, please go to the Union Transfer Show Saturday or, or, just saying, or if you're unable to make it, maybe just buy a ticket or go to the GoFundMe. It would be really cool. Um, this is another interesting thing that's coming up. For those of you that are able to Google City Gardens, City Gardens a building, which was a huge, impactful part of the scene in southern New Jersey, Pennsylvania in general, in the late 80s into the early 90s. And it is dilapidated and falling apart and nearly on the verge of collapse of the city will be tearing it down. But before that, the one, the only, freight train of Philadelphia, Ninth Circle, will be there. If you can get to City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey... Before 11 a.m. on Sunday, you can join in as Freight Train shoots what should be the last music video of all time at City Gardens, at City Gardens. Special. You hear what they say. You heard it here first, folks. Freight Train, little sneak video in a celebrated venue on its way out. So make sure you check that out, okay? Um... Thank you always for supporting the podcast and listening. Um, it is without a doubt an interesting thing. I hadn't, hadn't taken the time in a while to look at the metrics and all the things that come with doing a podcast. The last thing I ever look at is numbers or stuff like that. But um, after further review, there is a chance that we probably have a listener base wide enough to 
try to monetize and as I regulate the normalcy of going to work and home life and shifting things towards this is hardcore and the other stuff, uh, we are going to be putting episodes up on YouTube. We had a one YouTube episode to go alongside the Paris Mayhew first interview and that thing had the most amount of views we've had. So the idea is to start slowly putting the older episodes up and just keep it going, just keep it going. And then if we start adding more to it, maybe newer ones will come up, you know, soon after they hit the podcast channel that you're listening to now. The focus will always be on the audio end before, you know, going full video. I don't think this is going to turn into the Joe Rogan experience, but maybe with the help of monetization and some things, some of the things that we like to do with the show could become quicker, more accessible, and easier to do. So uh, off on that trail to see and walk that dog, so to speak. It's a weird thing to talk about because I don't really worry about the monetization of much of what I do. And I, I think some of you can glean that from conversations I've had over the last two years on this podcast not to say that profit has never come my way, not to say that I shoe and abhor the idea of people making money, but first and foremost, what I do, I do because I want to do it. There are people who do very little with their lives, but they raise good kids, and those kids become good humans, and that in itself means that they have lived a good life. Um, I look at things that I do for hardcore and with hardcore as a way of not only stimulating my own interests and, you know, just the excitement I've always had for hardcore, but also, you know, by adding to the culture and doing the things that we do, it continues it and pushes it forward. And and I think that that's my small way of help change the world in some way. So, you know, there's so many weird little coincidental stories that I'll hear from different people that show up at this hardcore. Hey, I want you to meet my wife. I met her at this hardcore this. Or interestingly enough, Dave Sausage had his daughter because he met his ex-wife at a this is hardcore. Just stuff like that, you know, and it's just a small little impact of just doing something and bringing people together sometimes can do a lot to change the world. Not that I run around with a hat that says I changed the fucking world, but... It's it's enough for me to not stress if every effort put out doesn't glean some kind of receipt or profit at the end of it. And I find myself in a modern era where the things that were eschewed or at least quietly not really displayed are becoming commonplace on the social medias. And it's really not my job. It's really not my job. And it's not a censor. And I think what happens is... When someone like myself goes on the internet and says the things, right? They say the things like, oh, well, you know, why are you gatekeeping? Or, you know, who are you to say this? It's like, yeah, well, the internet may not be the, or Twitter specifically may not be the best place with so many random abilities to jump on and cross post and quote, quote, quote tweet and start shit and the anime face people. But yeah, there was a time when. Maybe it was gentlemanly, but financial financial payouts, financial profits weren't really the goal. But 
obviously, as we talked about a little bit last year, last week, the ends have to justify the means. A band like Year of the Knife can't go on tour for the idea that they changed the world or for handshakes and high fives. They've got to have money to put in the oil tank. They've got to have money to recoup from the cost of fronting the merch. These are the things that are obvious. But the less obvious things is that some people who are living not in their parents' basement have to at least be able to cover the bills in some form. So, you know, th- these are the things I think about. But I, I see a lot of Wild wild West commentary on hardcore. And I see people very easily able to just, you know, almost say that, like, hardcore bands in the modern era should be making, like, what a regular day job is. And that's just not... I don't even know if that's plausible, to be honest. You know, like, I, I'm not even sure if I'm being honest. I, You know, like, I think that a band who can work their ass off and build a following and sell music and merch and all this stuff should be entitled to some things. But, like, I don't know, man. You just, like I say, you just get up and go to work 40 hours a week or 50 hours. You could probably still make money than most hardcore bands do in a 52-week year. Um, but more or less, I feel like there is the veil where people on the business side of things kept it quiet and hardcore had an aesthetic value that was on principles and focused more on the scene. And as these goofy goobers that pop up from the metal core bullshit, which I mean metal core, it's just, it's just metal that had no place. It was like metal. It was like metal junior. Metalcore is just basically too soft for the people who listen to real metal, like DSI and fucking the the real metal shit. So it's like these little kids. It's like little kid metal is fucking metalcore, and the deathcore is just like nerds who aren't as good as the real death metal band. So and they add breakdowns and stupid shit to them, and those folks are obsessed with popularity, obsessed with profits, obsessed with earning a living at their craft, and it's like. Dude, your band sucks. Your band is basically just a half-assed version of one, like two stupid ideas stuck together. But these kind of people find their way into conversations online that crisscross into the hardcore world. And I don't think that their their opinions have any bearing because tomorrow they'd be really good and cozy with their feet up in the back of a tour bus. Because that's the end goal for a lot of the rockers and the death metal people. And that's not to say that hardcore people can't ride in a bus. It's, it's things like that. You know, there's not these DIY semantics that were, you know, lauded by things like Maximum Rock and Roll, which is a zine for those kids who don't know. I'm not going to assume everybody knows everything I'm saying here. But I, I think that there has to be a line. I think there has to be a line still where... A band like Gridiron, yeah, if they make a fucking $45 shirt, you know, it's probably got fucking gold dust all over it or whatever fuck Matt Carl comes up with to make cool merch. And yeah, they should recoup the cost. But I don't see Matt Carl out there being like, we only made $4,000 at FYA. But you see this shit. It's just like, it, it, it fucking muddies the water. Mud- to me, it muddies the water. You know, like, the the commercial viability of hardcore is limited until you get to the point, and we've beat this fucking drum and brought this talk, 
topic to its own premature death by saying, of course, Turnstile is a commercial success, but it wasn't the records that were hardcore that were giant commercial successes. It's the pop music. And you can clearly call somebody pop music without insulting them. In fact, I think, if anything, to be able to command respect and love within a large community of underground people and then show your pure musicianship into the ability to craft a song that is viable and commercially, I'll I'll use my term, commercially soft enough that soft, normal people enjoy, show that you have a craft as an artist and who write music, but doesn't make everything a hardcore song. I find too many people in the hardcore scene quick to jump on the internet and start discussing just stupid politics of booking and, and like trying to evade being pro core but also unabashedly missing the whole mark for the whole hardcore thing that happened and this is a bizarre thing it's a bizarre thing to witness if I had a zine, I'd just write this. And five months from now, if I got around to printing it, six of you dickheads would have uh, read it. But um, with the podcast, I'm going to say it, and you're listening to it right now. So I'm sorry. Sorry for the flow of techni- technology allowing me to complain about this shit. But I, I do find that the focus when it comes to the bands like End It and Raw Brigade and uh, Restraining Order and that wreckage band just... It, I never hear anybody from those kind of, even Combust, I said, somebody who is not somebody I disagree with often on the internet, I don't disagree with her, but um, she said something about the importance of something like Life and Death Tour. And obviously Vital did a great job with that. And, you know, for many people in hardcore, especially early on when Turnstile was still a hardcore band, that was like an opening salvo of oh my god four or five awesome hardcore tours and if you live in the middle of nowhere that's an amazing thing but since that time so many bands play from all these different places there's all these regional fests so the life and death tour doesn't really seem as necessary to me in the 2023 time frame and i'd said something about it and then somebody had brought up 10 for 10 and i could i i could say it but it's a, it's a weird, funny story. There was a time when I did a terror show in Philadelphia at the church and it didn't sell. What did they need to sell? Because it was like 20 degrees out and the Eagles were in the playoffs and the show didn't do as well. So I had to pay back terror little by little. I've, I've had to pay back bands. I've had to pay uh, sure terror back a couple hundred bucks here and there because we lost money in December of a show. I had to pay back terror I think I had to pay back Breakdown, too, one time, because we did Breakdown the first time they played Philly and Forever on the day that Lost Last Episode was airing TV. And apparently people would rather see Lost Last Episode than see Breakdown play. And um, I'm not a, I'm not against, you know, celebrating my L's here. But in that conversation of going down and talking to um, Terra's booking agent at the time, who was a mentor and friend of mine at the time, we got into discussing the needs and what should come from hardcore and the conversation would eventually lead to the evolution of 10 for 10. But yet when it came down to 10 for 10 playing Philadelphia, you know, I was a, had some influence in the idea, but I didn't take it the rest of the way, obviously. And Sean Agnew and I got hit up 
to do the 10 for 10 tour in Philadelphia and at the DIY venue, we couldn't afford to make it work. So then later we got asked to sort of of co-promote and like push the show because the show was not doing well. And, and I think the reason why 10 for 10 wasn't a huge success is because it wasn't a hardcore thing. I mean, there was hardcore bands on it, but they also, you know, like all pro court things, they did their own. They made sure that Ghost Inside band played, and it's hard to pay all the bands what the bands need to tour with only $10 a show. You know, the idea was like, yo, you should do a whole tour with just like all hardcore bands. It's going to be sick. And again... Um, it was just weird to not be able to actually put on the show that the idea was birthed from. But I think that people wax nostalgically for something that existed because it, it is how they entered this thing or what they thought was cool. But not everything has the same in equal place years later. You know, um, the modern era for tour booking is the top band headliner needs to go on tour. They need to bring bands. And two of the bands are definitely bands that no one really is going to give a fuck about anymore. Because either the manager or someone's manager or someone's booking agent needs to put a baby band on there. Baby band is the term for a smaller band that needs to grow. So, through the myriad of favors, in a four-band package, four bands total, at least one of them bands is going to be a band that is not going to carry their weight because it's a favor to someone else in the hopes that they grow to be a bigger band. The same kind of thing would happen back in the 90s when there was a little bit more of a wild, wild west and shit like uh, Cold Chamber could jump on and be a part of something. Or even the first time I saw Civ in Philadelphia, Quicksand broke up, so Civ became the headliner. This band Smile, which was like a Southern California band that Big Frank put out, they were initially the openers, then they became the middle band, and this small band from California called the Deftones ended up opening. We had seen Deftones at the HMV, and we had seen Deftones' video, we had seen Deftones, yeah, it was at HMV and then the Tronk, they would play at the Kyber. But nowadays, it'd be bizarre to see a band like Deftones open for like a hardcore band. But in the early 90s or mid-90s, that kind of shit was commonplace because there wasn't really a place for stuff like the Deftones and the fucking Coal Chambers and whatever have you. So hardcore, because of its early entry point and it's so easy to get on shows, hardcore was kind of like the, the easy thing to jump on to give these bands some form of, you know, tour experience and, you know, exposure to the crowd. I think a lot of people in the booking agent world then were hoping to merge it sooner. And I think, looking back, like almost 30 years ago, it's never quite been pushed together and organically melded. Molded, melted, melted, whatever you want to call it. It's like a weld, but mold, I don't know. I don't know, welded together, we'd say. They, they've always tried to throw this bullshit at us. And, oh, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's cool, too. And, yeah, I, I guess, in theory, but I've I've never subscribed to that shit. And I've always been kind of, like, against it. And I think that only in time, by so many people who do not have the years of, like, oh, I remember being, I was going to remember I was a high school kid in 1995. You know, um, so 
that whole beginning of what we, the end of the grunge era, the beginning of what do we call it, the new metal stuff. Like it had no real place, so people were using independent, smaller shows to get these bands on there, and you know, Corn and Arms Nine Millimeter would play together with Sick of It All and such. But the 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 it was never like a full union, so to speak. And years later, people are still pulling this shit off. So some of these tours that come out now, they're not always organically sick. You know, because everybody who is involved in the business side of putting these tour packages together have their own interest at stake. Now they may say, hey, this is good for the headliner, but I, I caution that I don't always think that what's good for the headliner is good for the guy who's trying to hook up his next couple bands. There's so many favors owed in this weird little world of about 12 people at most that they're constantly passing the hat to each other at the cost of a promoter who needs to make sure they can break even, but you got to pay some band X amount of money regardless if they're worth it or not. And sometimes, hey, it works out. Sometimes the band that plays first ends up being giant. And sometimes it's just a favor to a band and it goes nowhere. And then that spot that could have went to some band that's growing doesn't formulate because that person whose band is growing but doesn't isn't in network. We use the health insurance terminology. If you have a booking agent or manager, now you're in network because someone's networking for you. So someone who who goes out and gets you to shows because he's wheeling and dealing. You know, it's just a different time where the wheeling and dealing almost takes precedent over trusting that a promoter could potentially have a better idea of like the drawing potential. But again, I also digress and say that reading the internet, my head hurts so many times from people who want to book shows, talk like they know how to book shows, but don't really understand what it takes to do the show. So um, a bunch of weird little things. I'm going to just go over quickly just for fun. Uh, I uh, my friend Tom from Rhode Island said on Twitter the other day something pretty funny. It was like uh, I want to go to I want actually I don't I want to not misquote Tom because I do like my dude, but I like also have to make fun of you. Uh, I do have to make fun of him, and I did that. But I of course I said yeah I'm gonna do it, and then I fucking have to scroll five minutes and then jabber like this. But yeah, essentially he was saying that. Why don't you just... Oh, yeah, there it is. Boom. Got it. I hate when booking agents say, send an offer. Like, dog, is your idea how much money you want? Tell me what you're asking for. So the concept of a blind offer, it's not so much blind. When you want to do a show and you contact a booking agent, you say, hey, I would like to book this band. They're going to say, well, send us an offer. This offer... This offer is inclusive of a couple things. If you got a, if you think the band is big enough to play a two or three hundred person room, well, there's that room's gonna have some kind of costs. So you gotta add that cost in there. Then you gotta figure out: do you pay a door guy? Do you buy wood? Or like all your show costs have to be in this offer. And then, depending on the size of the room and then what you charge, you don't want to send an offer that like the band only. You can only afford to pay the band's guarantee that you're offering if you have like almost the whole room sold out. You got to give yourself cushion. I always say like nobody hits a home run every day. Get yourself on base, make something smart, a reasonable guess about how many people you think will come. 
So let's say you say, oh, 60 people come. Oh, the show would be about 15 bucks. Well, you got to go 60 by 15. Okay, well, then that's how many people, that's how much money might come in. Okay, well, then I only got this much to offer. So yeah, there are bands that will just blatantly go, we'll play for $1,000. And those bands are fucking stupid. The modern time, the the way it works is you want to do something with a band, you send a fiscal offer in to the agent, and the agent will know because the agent gets offers in in this situation, the agent gets offers from that area, so they understand is this too high of an offer? Is this not good enough of an offer? Is this within the realm of when the band's not on tour and doesn't have any proximity clauses? Proximity clause for those not know is when a band plays an area too close of a time after a tour or something like a festival. Proximity gives distance so the band gets a paid premium. I'm going to pay a band more money if they're not going to play the area for a while, i.e. proximity clause. So, Tom, my friend, it's not just tell me what you want, dog. It's you're telling the booking agent what you can afford to pay the band as well as what the show costs would be. And then also, you know, let's say a show takes only 75% of the capacity to to make the money and break even. The bills are paid and the band's paid and the lower bands are paid. Well, then there's extra money. A lot of promoters who are new to the games think, well, that's my money, but it's not. There's a whole split deal at the end, but that's not a conversation for right now. I just like reading shit on the internet where it's like, it should just be this. Well, it's, it's not always that way. You know, like, and the reason why it's not always like that is because sometimes bands come in and they make a lot of money for a promoter and they get fucking ripped off. Plain and simple. Hardcore punk bands have been getting ripped off forever. You know, uh, I've booked Exploited two separate times, once at this hardcore, once at the church. And specifically had to go ahead and watch us both times. It's like, if we don't get paid before we get on stage, we're not playing. Because motherfuckers have been getting ripped off. They're fucking all in their 60s. They've been getting ripped off for almost 45 fucking years. It's like, we well, got to deal with a crazy asshole who could barely speaks the king's English, speaks Scottish. You can barely understand what he's saying. Fuck you. I don't get my money. I'm not going to play. <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. But that's the kind of shit you have to deal with. So, yeah. You want to be a promoter? Learn at least the language. I was really bad at it. I was really bad at understanding to to get in. And, you know, Jocko Willink does a lot about, like, there's no being a promoter, like, I don't have to play ball. You want to work with the promote agency. You want to work with bands that have agents. Bands have agents because those agents do the work to get the bands for a long career. There are plenty of fucking agents, and there's plenty of very quote-unquote, quote-unquote, quote-unquote DIY bands right now that have the biggest cocksuckers for booking agents. And there's such pains in the asses that even other booking agents are like, yo, this guy fucking sucks. So it's hard. Sometimes you're like, yo, I love this band. I hate the fucking booking agent. I'm not even going to fucking deal with this band. That's how shit is sometimes. And so it goes back to the thing I said about like saving the world. I ain't really saving the world booking hardcore shows, but maybe influence in someone, maybe that changes their path and their world. So then in some degree, there's some good influence and hardcore is giving me so much that I always want to give back. But at the same time is, man, I take a lot of shit from these fucking dickheads. I can teach you how to deal with some of the bullshit, but you have to understand is some of this shit is bullshit and 
doesn't matter if you've been doing shows zero years or 25 years, you have to deal with bullshit. Have to deal with the bullshit. There's a bizarre thing for me, and I say it all the time on the Twitter, like, there's the same thing about, like, money made. Like, there's tons of bands that openly have managers, openly have the benefit of booking agents who are elevating them quicker and over their peers. But then they're like, oh, well, you know, it's fucked up. There's about a merch cut. I mean, you, know, you pay someone 15% of everything that you make so you can make that money. <laughs> I'd be like, yo, yo, dog, why is this 15% again? Like, what did you do to give us 15 <laughs> You know, like, there's so many weird things that is acceptable and then what gets demonized on Twitter when it comes to shows. Um, but I had a couple random people hit me up about the uh, show last week and then I was going through a bunch of screenshots I have um, some old questions, and I'm just going to go through a couple here, and we'll have a short episode, and I'll get out of your ear babbling on, okay? This is from a username who I don't know the real dude, so I'm not going to say the name because I have no fucking idea what it is. Um, Joe, what are your thoughts on modern beatdowns? Fucking beat down. Uh, I mean, here's the deal. When it comes down to it, there are different parts of hardcore that get popular, fall out of popularity in the modern time that it was around, and then somebody else checks that band out. I was like, oh, I wish I could play like that. You know, everybody essentially is copying from something else or making something out of two other thoughts. So, um, as you know, with Bulldoze, Bulldoze being back and being very active, also playing the Black and Blue Bowl, um, killed it at FYA, killed it at Keystone Jam. FYA for Bulldoze was insane. But, you know, the mo- as I said with Keystone Jam, the modern-day hardcore kid who listens to Beatdown doesn't even like Judge. Doesn't even like youth of today. But Kevin Bulldoze, he was in the pit for Judge in 2013. He knew all them bands. I don't like that there's a separation from the New York hardcore and the stuff that made hardcore special and the people that modern day play beat down. You know, I, I even the EGH... Billy Cub Sandwich, uh, all the bands. You know, everyone knew their roots. And then in this goofy Kazaa 2000s metal bullshit, and now 2010s and 2020s, there's people that are so far removed from, like, making the connection that all the stuff that exists in that goofy fucking clubhouse of dumb bands, they have nothing to do, for the most part, with hardcore its own goofy universe so I would say that I like when kids do things because they're having fun I don't think that anything should ever be so parceled and pulled away from hardcore or like celebrate it like yeah I don't even listen to hardcore I just listen to this beat down it's like dude you sound like a fucking idiot whoever called it a beat down like as a genre is an idiot probably some foreigner Probably some weird Belgian or Japanese dude just called it beat down because I don't remember until 
I saw it being posted on like MySpace or something like beat down hardcore. And I'm like, wait, no, it's not hard. The hardcore is hardcore. I mean, literally, Kevin says old school, the return of, you know, it's always to be not an auxiliary part of hardcore, but actually just another part of like another band in the hardcore scene. And they have their own shows. They have their own um, goofiness. And, you know, ultimately everybody has fun. It's cool. It's whatever. But I'm not going to put a lot of shine on these bands that openly do not want to be involved in the local hardcore scene in their area. Now, if they play this shit and they also happen to be at all the shows in the local area and they're supporting the hardcore scene, then I'm going to give it some pay attention. But if it's like a band that wants to exclusively be in a room with 12 other dudes that are trying to reenact videos that they saw on the internet. Like, no, that's LARPing. Just LARPing. So, it's my opinion on modern day beatdown. Don't LARP. Listen to real hardcore. Support the hardcore scene in your area. And then people will then support your LARPing of a Castle Heights show in the early 2000s. Is that fucked up to say? I don't know. But it's the truth. That's I mean, at least that's how I feel. You know, um, I grew up, grew up in that shit because truthfully did grow up with, grew up with those bands, grew up in that scene. Uh, People would say Joe Hardcore Hardcore from the heavy New York stuff. And I was, and still am, I love hard dancing and all that shit. But like, I really always want everything to stay within the hardcore umbrella. And I don't like when people try to pull it out or just make it special. I didn't like the other side of the the spectrum. I didn't like the term posi numbers because I felt like so many there's so many goofball weird white nerds from the suburbs who were like openly racist or quietly racist or culturally racist that came from the posi scenes of the late 90s and early 2000s. It was like a bunch of dudes who wanted to be like the what are they called? The socks. The socias. Like they wanted to be not the greasers. They wanted to be like the socias. They wanted to be the fucking nerds. You know, they wanted to be the dudes like the alpha betas and revenge of the nerds. That was like the fucking some of the people in the posse scene. They were so hyped up on themselves and so hyped up on buying colored vinyl and all this shit and kind of missed a lot of the point of the hardcore scene. And I think when anytime someone goes hard into like a costume or like a performance or like a character in hardcore, they fall off quick. So I would say don't fall into that bullshit and don't, you know, don't, don't play a character. Be yourself. You know, me, I was dumb. Come from a weird neighborhood, uh, found hardcore in a weird time, traveled a bunch Went to a bunch of different shit. And yeah, I would be at a floor punch show and a day later I'd be at a bulldoze show and I'd be seeing Texas as a reason. I would see, you know, so many different things at that time period that I never really wanted to ascribe to, oh, I'm a beat down dude or yo, I'm a posse dude. I just always look at it hardcore. And that's, I don't know how that got to that, but that's where we're at with that one. Um, side note. Never trust anybody in hardcore who either finds God or goes Krishna past 30 years old. It's the way it is. You see somebody who uh, has an entire adult life 
on the internet, and then one day they got their beads and they're 108 in it, that's a fucking red flag. Straight up. Red fucking flag. Um, here's another one. How do you start off being a... Uh, this is like a, a booker agent. But I think it's all about shows. Um, how do you start? Well, depending. If you don't have anybody doing the shows that you want... Or there's a band that you like. Let's say, let's say you're that like idiot who likes to be in a room with 12 people punching against a wall in some venue with a beatdown band playing. But there's no beatdown bands to play your fucking hometown. Well, sir, here's a perfect slot for you to bring your dumb favorite beatdown band to some shithole basement so they can punch holes in the walls and only do one shows. I know. I mean, seriously, if if you try to do a show as a new promoter. There's already somebody established. It's going to be harder because the existence of the shows is already happening. And then the person who has the relationships with not only booking agents but other bands, you're not totally stepping on toes, but unless you're finding a void or a niche or something like that's interesting that you want to see and the current person in your local area isn't booking, I don't think it's wise to do. If anything, I think it's like, hey, can I help out or how do I learn? I think learning what to do before just doing is always more of a assurance, like a almost like an insurance policy. It's not an, not only an assurance, but an insurance policy, because now you're being taught some shit, so you don't just go out and make bad decisions off the bat, trying to be the beat down booker in your local area. I like that we're now using beat down as the fucking example, but um, yeah, I, I think if you're gonna start anywhere, you start by helping, pick up some trash, stay late, don't ask for money, maybe ask to stamp hands. See that this whole thing that we do at shows is service. Service. If you don't think it's service, you're crazy. Now, some people might get a fee. Some people might reap the rewards of serving. But there's so many thankless things. There's so many thankless tasks. There's so many weird things that I can't explain to you that have happened over this time, whether it's my hand full of throw-up, cleaning out of a men's sink, breaking up fights in girls' bathrooms, seeing bloody tampons on the floor two hours after the band's over and we're finally getting up to clean. Like, it's a thousand things you just have to do because you love this shit. Otherwise, you just fucking say, fuck this and I'm fucking dumb. You know? And honestly, most people who just book hardcore would be better off just having a real job if they're trying to have a living at just booking hardcore. Not this metal shit. Not this death metal shit. Like, true, pure hardcore. It's just hard to do. You know, so you might as well have a job and do it because you love it and do it because you want to see your community grow, want to see shows that bands that you don't get to see. These are the things that do it for you. Don't do it to go on Twitter and brag. You don't do it so you can go ahead and have people like you on the Internet. You know, most people who like you should like you for you, not for what you do, you know, or not because what you could do for them. And I, I think that sometimes when people are younger and they're looking for a place in the scene, Picking up an instrument's not always the option. Sometimes picking up and, you know, just doing a show seems like, oh, this is a great way. It's a lot of work. It's thankless. It's insufferable at times. The people, the, the if you haven't, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know how many times the people in this own thing make booking shows a pain in the ass between the bands, between the bands, the agents, the people, stupid people on Twitter who give these dumb bands and agents the fucking ideas in the first place. 
You have to love this shit. You have to want to serve this shit to do it right. So start out by serving. Start out by helping out. Start out by picking up the trash outside. Or, hey, can I pass flyers out at the end of the night? And I also think that's the other thing. is Not everybody needs a ticket for a show. You ain't got the money? How can you serve? How can you help? How can you pitch in? How can you make things better? How, what can you do to add to the promoter's group of people who can facilitate and put on a show? You know, service comes at a value that could subsequently get you, hey, you know what, I, I, I didn't get the money for a show, but I'll come and stay late and I'll help. Like, you know, these are invaluable things that you could do to get your foot in the door and then someone can kind of show you the way. Um, I, I kind of went on a tangent with that one, but that was a cool one to answer. And then um, some weird questions about punishment playing again, which, yeah, we'll be playing again. We'll be playing. Um, there's some thoughts, but they're not fully sketched out, so they're not worth mentioning. But um, I think for me, I would say that playing with both punishment and Shattered Realm in... 2022 was very interesting and I can't believe it's almost been a year since we did the 20 year show and yeah hopefully there'll be more punishment shows and yeah that's all I've got on the punishment thing and Shadow Realm does what it does we get offered shows sometimes we can play them sometimes we can't play them I never really I don't compartmentalize and I don't say like oh we have to do this or you know like I can, I can just say we do what we do when we want to do it. And that's the best way to put it. And I don't have any grand schemes. You know, we're not the... Mo- Shadow Realm is not the most highly in demand band for a lot of reasons. So, you know, we kind of take it easy. And if it's something that's available to us and we're able to make happen because people do want us to play because they wouldn't be offering us money to play, we do take it seriously. But everyone's got crazy schedules. Um... What's up with this is hardcore this year? I don't know. What's up? <laughs> what the fuck do you mean? What's up with it? Like, what's good with it? It's good. It's going to be real good, I guess. I always love when people have like, as like, like these random, and this is probably from last year's What's Up With This Is Hardcore. Uh, what's up with this hardcore is that it, we are in the middle of booking it and that, as you can see, the sharks are in the water. Fest dates are being thrown around. Everybody's got a fest. And it's just going to come down to what the team can pull together. I'm lucky that I have a team. I'm lucky that Greg Falchetto and Bob Wilson and Eric Walk and even Rich Hall steps up and gives a hand and tries to help formulate, curate. And then we put it in poor Greg Daly's hands to make sure it happens. We know the plan is, as I said, early August, first week, first weekend rather. And that's it. That's all. That's all on this is hardcore. Um, because next week will be past the time. I should spend a last bit of time discussing my daughter. Um, I had her in nineteen ninety-seven. I was sixteen, turning seventeen. My life was a mess and a blur. And I've never regretted being a father at a young age. I didn't understand. Didn't have the 
emotional maturity, didn't really have a, a compass or wasn't really placed in the proper position to receive further instructions and be able to move forward on things. And I, at different times, when I was told you're going to be a father, it felt like a weight, like a giant stone on my chest. Like, was I good enough? I mean, you got to remember as I was truly 15 turning 16 when I was told. So I was 16 turning 17 when she came out. And there's some a lot of fun stories. I got to go and move out of my mother's basement work in a bowling alley and work with my boy Carmen and for those of you who didn't hear all the other episodes Carmen and I lived together in this apartment and he was a very close friend and he would kill himself and that would be the impetus for me to go straight edge but there was a moment when me and Carmen really had a we were going through a time <laughs> and he was like 18 turning 19 I'm 16 turning 17 and we had those CDs from the the uh, the green CD from um, Rev, the green comp, the way it is, and I had a Warzone CD. He had the um, he had the he had the Chromags, the Mob, and something else. So we had all of the another planet like comp CDs, like the two CDs, the two LPs. We would listen to them all together, and we were obsessed with Killing Time. And my mother, for that Christmas before I was going to be a father, got us tickets to see Agnostic Front playing at the Wetlands on that Saturday. And, you know, it's a weird thing to think about, but I was a 16-year-old kid nervous about being a father who would just go to see an agnostic front reunion and help change the direction of what I wanted to do. And not too soon after Kayla was born, uh, I really began doing shows like within a month or so, but it was like, not like, Oh, well she's out now. I'm going to do shows. Like the, the show was already planned. Agnostic front happened. Like, That's it. I'm doing a show. Now, and I talked a little bit of like why I did my first show or whatever, but my daughter is a full ass adult human now, and she lives in Philadelphia again. She is on a career path to be in the hair salon industry, cosmetology, whatever you want to call it. And there's a surreality that comes from being a father, but feeling. Like, I still, I don't even know if I feel, there's times I don't know if I feel old enough to be her father. But as I'm told, I'm a boomer, and I'm getting old, and all this shit, I guess I am her fucking dad. And, um, her birthday is the 6th, February 6th. And it's a, it's a very interesting thing for people who do not have kids. But... To think back through all that time, you know, like, and then, like, because of the culture that surrounded my life, <laughs> there's all these, like, weird hardcore moments, like, oh, yeah, I did the church show in 2009, and she did her first stage dive, <laughs> it's like, uh, this is 
fucking so weird, but also so fitting for the life that we have. And the most interesting and beautiful thing is that my daughter, who at various times either lived with me and my mother and then would eventually live with me alone and then would go back and live with her mother in a different state. She's lived in three or four different states with her mother, maybe only three. Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey. Yeah, three. And um, so we've had time apart. We've had time together. We've grown up together in a lot of ways. Uh, She's a goddamn giant, so she's nearly my height. And um, as a father of someone who's that age, I still see the little girl in her at times. And I know parents probably always say this, but because I'm getting older, it is emotional. Because, yeah, she's six foot and ninja kicking people and doing the thing. But I still see echoes of her being young. And it's a bizarre thing. And I hope that anyone listening still who isn't like, Joe, shut up about your kid, understands that there's always going to be a pride that you have from your children and what they do and the person that they are. But there's a surreality of like looking at your fully adult child <laughs> being like, oh, well, you know, um, it's a lot, but I, I wouldn't change it for anything. And I hope in the coming years that she continues on her path of bettering herself and the career that she chose. And she finds a way to balance both career and going to shows and making herself happy as a human being and as an adult in a very crazy time in a crazy world. And I love her. Kayla Devin is... Me and her have been through a lot of shit. And there's so many things that her and I share. Like as a bond of just things that we're both interested in. Things that I introduce her to. And things that I'll always think of. And I just wanted to, since she does listen to the show, just tell her that I've always been proud of her. I've wanted to choke her the fuck out. I've told her I was going to bury her under the, the fucking steps in the backyard. Fucking complete psychopath I probably was as a dad But I've always loved her And she enriched my life And I think Had I not been a father at that age Even though as hard as it was It made me shift Into a different direction So much of my life would have not happened So I'm proud of her I love her And I just want to say happy birthday to Kayla Um, There's not much more to go with this I hope that you enjoyed the new year The knife song I hope that you are fucking ready for all these GB shows. The one that Greg has is about to sell out in Atlantic City. There's all these shows, and then I, I decide I'm not going to read them off because our Philly Hardcore Show's calendar is sometimes not updated, and I sound like a complete fucking moron. But um, tomorrow will be Matt Summers' benefit. I hope you're there. Sunday, I hope you're there for the Freight Trend video special. Only time ever at CB, at City Gardens will be this upcoming Sunday. It's going to be fucking sick. And um, always follow phillyhcshows.com. Follow phillyhcshows on Instagram and Twitter. com for this. And then also fest on, on Twitter. This is Hardcore Fest on Instagram. Follow fest. Um... There's so many cool shows. There's so many badass things that 
people that aren't me do. Bob Wilson does amazing amounts of fucking super cool things. Alex is putting on some shows. That Stucky's all over the place, kicking some ass and fucking kicking some ass, taking names, fools gaming it, doing these goddamn shows all over from the fucking media. I can't believe Bob is doing a show at Bonks with C4 and Burning Lord. Just sounds fucking crazy to me, but it's happening. Um, yeah, there's a whole list, and I just gotta say Philadelphia's not hitting a. We're not hitting. We're not hitting what I would say is, oh my god, this is the best it's ever been. No, but there's definitely some amazing things, and it's not just one kind of group of hardcore people. It's not just the beatdown stuff, the fast stuff. It's everything. And it's happening because Ben's doing shit, Bob's doing shit. Everyone's adding to this instead of saying, like, one person is just picking one thing. And it makes Philadelphia hardcore beautiful, but also, even still, without without saying it, or without having to say it, I'll still say it, the important thing is is to remember that hardcore only can exist if you're supporting it, if you're helping out. So... I would hope that you're either supporting, playing, just being in the crowd, helping out, doing something, and being a part of your local scene. Because it is it is not a corny thing. Every single person that goes to a show changes the show for the better, and every single person at a show makes the show better. So get your ass out to some shows. And then also, um, if you're unable to go to the Matt Summers thing, make sure to look for the GoFundMe and support support anybody who comes from the hardcore scene and is having a bad time because it may eventually be you who needs the help and you'd want your generosity to be given back to you. Okay, goodbye.